good to be with you guys. Uh, I've been out for a few weeks. Very, very glad to be back as always. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Exactly 500 years ago this month, 500 years ago this month, on October 31st, 1517, this, this unknown monk named Martin Luther nailed a position paper to a church in Wittenberg, Germany, condemning the many corrupt practices and abuses of power of the Catholic Church at the time. Now, before I get any further, I want to be clear that the Catholic Church today is not the same as the corrupt Catholic Church of the late Middle Ages. But this is the season that Martin Luther was in, where the church overall had significant elements of corruption, they were abusing their power. One example of this abuse of power was the practice of selling indulgences. An indulgence is is literally a paper certificate um, that you can buy, that you pay money for, that uh, the church is guaranteeing that you will reduce your punishment for sins in purgatory. You follow me? So purgatory, the idea was that purgatory uh, is a sort of waiting room between earth and heaven. And it's for Christians. And it's where Christians go after they die. And here, I'm reading a quote here, to undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joys of heaven. So the idea here is that there's this place beyond this place, but not yet to heaven, where Christians, um, based on how they live their lives, would pay for their sins in purgatory. And the longer that you sinned on earth, the, the worse you were on earth, the longer that you served in purgatory after you died. But you could be welcomed into heaven early if you would only pay, yes, literally pay for your sins now. This was the practice of selling indulgences. One popular, this is vulgar, but one popular jingle at the time said this, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So the idea is that you could, you could buy these certificates and literally uh, reduce the number of years that you would spend paying for your sins in purgatory, either for yourself or for someone else. At the time of Martin Luther in the late Middle Ages, this abuse of indulgences had uh, gotten very serious. And the Pope, the bishops, the friars, the priests, the preachers, they, they all were promising a reducing of punishment for your sins if you only buy this certificate. And the more you buy, the shorter your time. And 500 years ago this month, this completely unknown figure, Martin Luther, made his way to the church door and nailed up his uh, condemnation of these corrupt practices and changed the world. And started what many of us know as the Protestant Reformation. He called them out. He called uh, essentially his employers out for their corruption of power. And, And against this and other corruptions, Luther, hear me, through the scriptures, through the scriptures, confronted the church with the truth that salvation is found in Christ alone. Salvation is found in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. This is not something that you can buy with money. This is not something you can buy with good deeds. This is something that Jesus purchased for us on the cross at Calvary. 
And so these five onlys, Scripture alone, by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, that, that became the rally cry of the Reformation in years to come. And the Reformation ushered in many of the benefits that we take for granted today. You may not realize this, but do you, do you enjoy reading the Bible in your own language? I do. Do you enjoy congregational singing? Do you take solace in knowing that you as an individual have direct access to God? Do you believe in the ministry of every member of the church? Do you rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross to pay for your sins? These and many others are benefits and results of the Reformation started 500 years ago this month. And so this morning we're going to begin, God willing, what will be a five-week series going over those five onlys. And, and in Latin they're called the five solas, right? The five onlys. Scripture alone is our final authority for faith and life. Salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, found in Jesus alone, to the glory of God alone. And if I sound like a broken record, because I know I've said that maybe three times, I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it. It's going to be the rally cry for us. And this morning we'll talk about this first one, the doctrine of Scripture alone. And let me read for us from 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says this, this is Paul writing to this young pastor, Timothy, in Ephesus, a very, very secular pagan city. And he says this, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's the only time that word is used in Scripture, by the way. Um, that God's word, that Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for Correction for training in righteousness that the man of God and the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let me say a prayer for us as we get going. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that, um, God, we thank you that we don't have enough money to buy our way in. God, we thank you that we can look to you, um, our Savior, as the one who paid a price that we never could have afforded. And so, God, we rest in that salvation. We rest in the truth that is revealed in Scripture. So, God, be with us this morning. Help us to leave here worshipers, lovers of you. God, there's so many temptations to love, so many other things more than we love you. God, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that you'd help us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. You know, any, any thinking person at one time or another will ask this question, something like this. Is there such a thing as truth? It's a good question, right? It's a powerful question. Is there such a thing as truth? Is, the, is there such a, what is the source of truth? Where does, where does truth come from? Is all truth relative? Is it something like, you know, what, what's true for you may not necessarily be true for me, but you can live your truth. Is that the way it is? And how can we know? And for Christians, for, you know, you may not know this, we're gathered together as Christ's body. The church this morning, we're opening scripture together. Can the Bible be trusted? Can God's word be trusted? You know, it's interesting. I was talking to Brandy uh, last night, just talking about this kind of idea. Um, and, you know, when you open your Bibles and you're reading in the book of Genesis, the first time that you're introduced to the serpent, the enemy, Satan, the first time you're introduced to this character in Scripture, it's in Genesis 3. And do you know what the first thing out of his mouth is to God's people? Did God actually say dot, dot, dot? You see what he's doing here? 
He's trying to immediately, the first words out of the serpent's mouth, the first words out of the enemy's mouth is trying to cast suspicion on God's word, what God actually said. Alan Bloom in his book, and this is a great title, The Closing of the American Mind, written 30 years ago today, uh, or of this year. He says this, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. That almost every student entering the university believes, or at least least says he believes, that truth is relative. That there is no final, authoritative, absolute truth. And I'm sure we can say that things have not improved much over the last 30 years since Bloom wrote that very disheartening sentence. I think, if anything, it's gotten worse. We live in a culture, I read recently, that we live in a culture of ethics by consensus. Right, so we just we find our tribe, we find our group, and then it's each group warring against the other group for their own perceived truth. One writer put it this way, Terry Johnson, pastor, professor, he says, in contemporary culture, there is no ability to distinguish good from bad or truth from error, even important from the unimportant. All such distinctions are seen as being contrary to the chief virtue in today's world, that of openness. Or tolerance. When that becomes our chief virtue, it becomes very difficult to say what is and what is not true. And so the question is, where can we go? Where can we go to find valid answers to life's questions? And we all have them. This is a universal problem. Asking questions about your own sin, about guilt, about eternity, about fear, about faith, about who you were created to be. The, the ultimate question, why are we here And where did we come from? Where can we go to find reliable, trustworthy, authoritative standards for faith and life, for belief and behavior? Well, here's what Jesus says. He says in his prayer to the Father, he says in John 17, Father, your word is truth. Your word is truth. So the Bible Uh, This book that we have here in front of us, it makes the audacious claim that it is God's very word. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired from the mouth of God. And when when the Bible says that it's uh, God-breathed and that it's inspired, it's not saying that, it's not saying in the subjective sense that we find the Bible inspiring. It's saying in the objective sense that the Bible is from the mouth of God. That this is God's word. It's not our opinion. It's not, it's not myth. It is God's word. All of scripture, every word, every sentence, every chapter, every book, God breathed. God breathed. It's important to understand here um, that the Bible is not really one book per se. It's a collection of 66 books. And these 66 books were written over the course of, if you can believe it, 1,500 years by 40 different writers in three different languages across multiple continents. And yet, in this collection of books, there is a unified theme. There's thorough consistency and complete historical confirmation. This is how historical documents are confirmed and evaluated today, right? This, that, that one, a historian examines one document in light of another document to confirm the historicity of the collection. That has been done with the Bible. It is more provable um, than George Washington's speeches. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts. 
Now, some people push back. Some people push back and say, the Bible was not written by God. It was written by men, right? And in some ways, that's, that's painfully obvious, isn't it? Because when you open the Bible, Genesis doesn't read like the Gospel of Matthew. It sounds like it was written by two different people, right? If you open up the book of Psalms, it doesn't read like the book of Romans. If, if you open up the book of Ecclesiastes, it doesn't read like the book of Revelation. It very clearly is written by human authors, not by God. That's the objection. Now, the Apostle Peter, he, he writes this. He clarifies this issue in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, for no, hear this church, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You hear that language? It's beautiful language. That, that it was never produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, of course, the Bible reflects the personalities of the human writers that God chose to use. But the authors who wrote uh, the scriptures wrote only in exactly what God said. I want to I do a little uh, illustration for you. So, if you have a pen or a pencil, grab it. If you have a pen or pencil or a marker or whatever you have, whatever writing utensil you have, grab it. And if you have a bulletin or a notepad or whatever, write your name on it. Just write your name on it. It's a simple exercise, right? Now let me ask you a question. Did your pen or pencil have anything to do with the message that you wrote? No. I mean, even though I told you what to write, right? You, you wrote your own name. You chose what you wrote. Maybe some of you just doodled. Maybe some of you wrote something else. Right? You chose what you wanted to write. And yet, and yet, as you look down at it, what that, that message that is exclusively yours bears the mark of the tool that you used. Do you see that? So that if you picked up a pencil and you wrote, or if you picked up a pen, or if you picked up a marker, if you picked up a crayon, whatever, whatever that message that you wrote would be exclusively your message, but any of those messages would reflect the personality of the tool. Do you see that? So don't let the enemy draw suspicion against the text by reading it and go, you know, this book sounds differently than that book. It, it couldn't have been written by God. It's written by man. The scripture says, no, 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 they were carried along like you carried along your pencil. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit to communicate exactly God's word. And if scripture is God's word, if it's God's word, that it must be authoritative. It must be believed and followed. Martin Luther said, let the man who would hear God speak read the scriptures. These aren't just words. This isn't just a book. This isn't even just a collection of books. This is God's word. God's word. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. All scripture is God-breathed profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. The Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. The, the, the Bible is God's word, and the Bible is enough for us. It, it's able to equip us. It's good to equip us for every good work. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. The doctrine of Scripture alone, that's what we're talking about now, the doctrine of Scripture alone does not mean Scripture alone contains truth. That's not true. But it means that Scripture alone is infallible and inerrant. 
There are no errors. There are no imperfections. And there are errors and imperfections in every other place we may find truth, right? But Scripture alone is infallible, and it is enough to equip us for every good work. Our traditions, of course, uh, traditions are great. Many of us have very special traditions. The church has very special traditions. Our families may have very special traditions. And our traditions may reflect truth. Our, our, our brains, our reason, our rationality may discover truth. Our experiences may be true. Our interpretations of the Bible or of history may be true. But only Scripture is perfect. Only Scripture is perfect. Only Scripture is without error. It's not Scripture only, but Scripture alone. Scripture alone is without error. God has given us science and history and philosophy, and those are of critical importance. Reason and tradition and interpretation and memory and experience are all important. They are all critical, but they're imperfect. They're imperfect. So when our reason or our tradition or our interpretation or our experiences clash with the clear teachings of Scripture, we should be suspicious of ourselves and not of our Bibles. All right? When your view clashes with the Bible's view, you should question your view, not the Bible. We should evaluate the validity of our view of things in light of what Scripture says. So whether, whether we're thinking about love or forgiveness or fatherhood or sin, we should understand that in light of what Scripture teaches and not the other way around. So you see, I don't rightly understand what the Bible says about love from my personal experiences of love. Why? Because my personal experiences of love are imperfect. I should instead understand my understanding and experience of love in light of what the Bible says about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not just an emotional, fleeting feeling. Love bears with the burdens of others. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. Love endures, right? So you see, if we look at just our experience of love, we'll, we'll be flawed and broken. Our understanding will be flawed and broken. And yet if we look at Scripture and what Scripture says, we'll have a right and clear understanding of what the thing is. The psalmist write in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. And now, as, as I'm reading this, I want you to think about what I'm saying here, what Scripture is saying here in Psalm 19. And think about the, the desires of your heart. Of your heart. Think about what you want. What do you really want? What do you ache for? Because here's what Scripture says about the word of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Isn't that what we want? The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. Don't we all long for wisdom and insight? The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. So our fundamental want is joy. The commandments of the Lord are pure. They enlighten the eyes. They give insight. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord, they are true and altogether righteous. They are to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. Drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, 
By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Scripture is what God's word is what he uses to communicate and reveal himself to bring us joy, to give us wisdom, to give us insight, to revive our souls, to rejoice our hearts. This is what we long for. Chris Castaldo says the Bible alone is our supreme source of authority. If, if it, it is God's word speaking to us in a manner that is fully authoritative, it is sufficient, it is altogether reliable on account of divine inspiration because it is God-breathed. Scripture is the first order authority. It arbitrates every other second order authority, whether that's the natural law or conclusions of a particular theologian or of a particular church. The Bible alone is enough. And let me tell you this this morning, church. The Bible is for you. God's word is for you. You know, George Barna um, did a survey a few years ago um, on biblical literacy. And he found that the most widely known, some of you may have heard me tell the story, the most widely known um, Bible verse cited in this survey was this. God helps those who help themselves. Now, some people are laughing because that's not in the Bible. Um, in fact, this is a little disheartening. 75% of American teenagers believed that was the central message of the Bible, that God helps those who, helps them, who help themselves. It's the most widely recognized Bible verse in this survey. Now, fortunately for all of us, that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible, and, and in fact, it's completely contrary to the gospel message. The gospel message is this. The, the whole point of the gospel is that God helps those who could never help themselves. God helps those who could never help themselves, but yet, sadly, here's the bad news. We don't know our Bibles. We don't know our Bibles. This survey said that 96% of evangelicals, which that number alone is surprising, 96% of evangelicals uh, claimed to have read their Bible in the past week. Well, that's something, but it gets worse. Um, of Baptists, only 34% believed that Satan was real. Only 43% believed that works don't earn your salvation. And only 55% believed that Jesus was sinless. A considerable number of respondents said that um, uh, when asked who preached the Sermon on the Mount, the most common answer was Billy Graham. <laughs> Billy Graham is a very famous uh, preacher, evangelist of the uh, 20th century. He did not preach the Sermon on the Mount, which is quite older. It was preached by Jesus. Um, Kenneth Birding says that all the research indicates that biblical literacy in America is at an all-time low. It's at an all-time low. And now it's reached a crisis point. Richard Foster, in his book on the spiritual disciplines, he says, many Christians, and I think this is probably true for many of us, many Christians remain in bondage to fears and anxieties simply because they do not avail themselves of the discipline of Bible study. We don't read our Bibles. And so we live trapped in fear and anxiety and insecurity and self-doubt. Because why? Because we don't know the truth. 
And Jesus says in John chapter 8, if you abide in what? My word. If you abide in my word, you, will, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. This is very similar to what David said in Psalm 19, right? It's, it's exactly what we need. Joshua says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And here's, here's the reason he gives. He says, you know what, don't let, this, don't let God's word depart from your mouth. You need to think about it day. You need to think about it night. You need to think about it all the time. And you ask the question, why? Why? What's the point? So that when, so that then you will make your way prosperous, you'll have good success, it will go well with you. Now don't misunderstand, this is not a prosperity gospel kind of message. The, the, the deepest uh, prosperity and the deepest success is freedom and joy in the salvation of Christ. He wants it to go well for us. So he says, come feast at my word. But the Bible is not just for us alone. This is where some of us get into trouble. The Bible is not just for you. The Bible is for you collectively, but it's not just for me. It's not just for you. The Bible is not just for us alone, but, it, but to encourage. It's, it's, not, it's, not just to, it's not just to encourage us. It's not just to inspire us. It's not just for us to get a, a, a quick word from God for the day. The, the Bible is there. Scripture is there for, for God to draw us to himself. And for God to draw us together as the people of God. And it says very clearly to equip us for every good work of ministry to serve the people of God, and to serve our neighbors, to serve our world, just as Christ came to serve he gives us scriptures ultimately to transform us into the image of his son, Jesus. The scriptures are given to us. The written word is given to us to point us to the living word. The word become flesh. The word dwelt among us. The living word, the resurrected word, Jesus Christ. The final word from God for each of us. So, some of us need to be told to, all of us, to a certain degree, need to be told to go to your Bible, read your Bible. Don't forget about the Bible. Don't just let it sit on your shelf. Don't let it sit on your nightstand. Don't let it stay in your car. Read your Bible. But it's not just about the pages. It's about the person. The scriptures are a signpost pointing to your Savior, the one and only Savior who can save you from your sins, who can save me, who can forgive us, the only one to give us lasting hope. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. You go to scriptures, right, to find truth, but you don't find anything. Why? Because the scriptures point to me. Go to scriptures to get to Jesus. Let's pray, church.